appropriate song for a study on the life of Jacob last week, we began our 12-part series on biblical allegories by looking at leprosy, blindness, and the lamb. This week, lessons from the life of Jacob. Um, did all of you get notes? Anybody short of a note? That if you need one, I think so. And it seems a good one else has them. The notes are there just to give you basically all the scripture references we'll be using tonight. But if you look on the back, you can see the whole list of messages uh, as they unfold through the next few months. Um, the three fathers of the Hebrew faith are mentioned together numerous times in scripture for good reason, not only to identify their God, the God of the Hebrews, but also to characterize his people. Let's begin by looking at Exodus chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. I'm just going to provide some context before we look specifically at the life of Jacob. Uh, if you understand his background, what the Bible says about his people, it makes things come alive just a little more in our text this evening. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 3 of Exodus, And Moses said unto God, uh, God had just called him from the burning bush, told him to go back to Egypt, lead his people out. And Moses said, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers that sent me unto you, they shall say to me, What is his name? It's a perfectly reasonable question. What should I tell them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. What a fantastic name for God. Uh, just another indication of the authenticity of our God. It's a, such an appropriate name for a God who has no beginning, no end, who lives outside of time and eternity. I am that I am. Whether you like it or not. Um, <coughs> Thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Now that name I am appears in Hebrew as four letters, Y-H-W-H. There are no uh, vowels in ancient Hebrew. Um, so just the four letters for the tetragrammaton. It was such, his name is so holy that uh, the Hebrews never mentioned his name after this first mention here. They always uh, referred to him as the Lord or the Almighty, but they did not mention Yahweh. And uh, when you see the Lord in small capitals in your King James Bible, it's the same thing. Behind that small capital name, the Lord, is Yahweh. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So God identifies himself as the Eternal One, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they were the patriarchs of this glorious work that he was beginning with them, through them, to restore what was lost in Eden. And there's so many allegorical references. We're just going to look at 
the pure living. Abraham, God is turned to be the God who favors the faithful. In Isaac, he is the God who fulfills his promises. In Jacob, he is the God who finishes his plan. Abraham is saved through his faith in God, and his faith results in the miraculous spiritual birth of Isaac, the son of promise. The name Isaac means laughter, and it reminds us that salvation brings joy. Uh, in Isaiah 2 and verse 3, Therefore with joy shall you draw water after the wells of salvation. Listen, if you're a Christian, and joy isn't an actual part of your life, something's wrong. We are supposed to experience joy. doesn't mean you run around like a chicken with your head chopped off. It just means that joy sustains you day by day, and it's a wonderful thing. Constant reminder that you're a child of God. Jacob's life illustrates the war between our two natures, flesh and spirit, and that follows our spiritual birth. His twin brother Esau, born first, the first Adam, we're going to look at that in some detail in a moment, is earthly, unspiritual, and sells his birthright. His inheritance is the eldest son for the things of this world. Jacob, for his part, is always in conflict with himself, with his brother, with everybody else, and he always wins until he meets God, and then he loses in a spectacular fashion. Before we take a closer look at his life, there's one more scripture passage I'd like us to look at in 2 Corinthians chapter, <coughs> sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 from verses 45 to 47. In 45 it says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And if you look back at verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but, and verse 23, every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Adam was the firstborn of the human race long before Esau. And just as Esau did, traded his birthright for a pot of stew, so Adam likely traded his birthright for the fruit from the forbidden tree, the things of this world, and was separated from God. When Jesus died on the cross, he represented the last of the earthly Adamic race who were dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, that's an amazing thought. It says so here in the text uh, in verse 45. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul, the last Adam. Adam in the Garden of Eden was the first Adam. He messed up. When Jesus died on Calvary, he put to death the old Adamic race. Do you realize that it's everybody born since then has been dead to God? It's a scary thought, but it's true. It says so in Ephesians, dead in trespasses and sins. If you are of the race of Adam, you have no eternal life in you. You're dead to God. But God didn't stop there. In verse uh, 
47, he says, the first man is of the earth earthy, the second man is the Lord from heaven. So we have a first Adam and a last Adam putting that whole race aside. And then we have the first man, Adam was the first man, and not the last man, but the second man. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he rose as a progenitor of an entirely new race of people. Descended not from earth, but from heaven. And that's the only way you get into heaven. You've got to be part of this new family, descendants of the second man. The first man won't get you to heaven. Anything that you do in uh, memory of the first man, or because you're related to the first man, or you think the first Adam was a great guy, will not get you to heaven. Your efforts won't get you there. You have to be a descendant, part of the family of the second man, the new man, the new race, who are citizens of heaven. That's an amazing thought, but it's true. Uh, this explains Paul, by the way, chiding the sinful Christians at Corinth for behaving like men. Uh, it's a quirky little verse that 1 Corinthians 15 says, you're behaving just like men. And, you know, your response would be perhaps, well, yes, I am one. Paul's point is, no, you're not. You're behaving as if you're part of the first Adam. And you're not part of the first Adam. You're now part of the family of the second man and start to behave like you're part of that family. What a thrilling thought. So all of these things are relevant as we look at the life of Jacob, the supplanter. A supplanter, by the way, is someone who takes the place of someone who was there first. And before we go any further, let me just pray and ask God's blessing here. Father, please bless me uh, as I share these thoughts. Help me to keep my thoughts clear. Bless us as we listen. Uh, make, may this word come alive to us, Lord. It's such an amazing thought. The life of Jacob is such, so rich in allegory, so rich in teaching. Please draw us closer to you through this word. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, let's go back to Genesis 25 and see... Now the stage is set for the character of Jacob. Genesis 25 from verse 21. Here is Jacob's life story in a nutshell. <coughs> so, reading from verse 21, Isaac entreated she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Which was very unusual. The firstborn son was always the inheritor, and uh, the second-born son just lost out. Well, it was very unusual then for the second-born to become the inheritor, but God prophesied that right here. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name 
Esau. Um, Esau means doer or worker. He was a man of the field. He was a man who lived in his body, who liked the outdoors, who had no time at all for spiritual things. And by the way, he was his dad's favorite because he was an outdoor guy and came back with uh, venison for the old man from time to time. Um, and then it tells us Jacob was somewhat different. And after that came his brother out and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. He grabbed Esau. They'd been fighting in the womb and then he grabbed Esau's heel to try and get out before Esau. Uh, and uh, his name was called Jacob, the planter. And Isaac was three score years old when she bare them. And the boy grew and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man. That means he was even-tempered. He was a kind of calm. He was uh, not excitable. And he lived in tents. That means uh, he was somewhat more sophisticated than his older brother. Uh, probably was a bit of a bookworm. He liked reading. He liked talking to his moms. He was he was the mom's favorite. And um, an even-tempered man. And Isaac loved Esau because he had eaten his benefit, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sought pottage. He made lentil stew. Don't you love the old English? It's just marvelous when it's sod pottage. You just cook up some stew. And Esau came from the field and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with the same red pottage, for I'm faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. Edom was his nickname. Um, Edom means red, lusty, or passionate. And the earth, by the way, uh, in America, I don't think we have this, except there's one place in Arizona uh, that I've been to, I don't remember its name, where the earth is red. But in Africa, the earth is red. Now, it's not blood red, but it's basically got a red tinge to it. And so, Edom means red. And he was a hairy guy, red all over, a man of the field. And Jacob said, Show me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he, Esau swore unto him and sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink, rose up and went his way uncaring. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Um, just extraordinary that uh, we should take so lightly the things of God. So uh, this sets the uh, dramatic backdrop for what we're going to discover about Jacob. There are three additional pas passages which really describe his life. At his beginning, uh, Esau says this to him a little later, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has departed me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. At his end, that's Jacob's end, uh, in Hebrews 11.21, it says of him, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. What a change. And his motivation in between was like that of the Apostle Paul, who said in, to the Philippians, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto the things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of a high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, Jacob wasn't a very nice guy. 
but you cannot fault him for one thing. He was determined he was going to get a hold of God one way or the other. So let's look at his journey. Uh, because his journey through life, from supplanter to saint, is our journey. He didn't travel in miles as far as his grandfather Abraham, but he traveled a very great distance in his spiritual growth. The name given to him by his parents at birth described him very well. Uh, supplanters in our uh, colloquial language, you could call him a train jumper. Remember the old gold rush days? Uh, somebody did it rich and someone else jumped his train to steal it all. Well, that's what Jacob did. He was a train jumper. The name later given to him by the angel of the Lord marked the outcome of his long and winding spiritual journey and transformation. His name was changed finally to Israel, the Prince of God. What a change. What an incredible transformation. Well, how did that happen? Okay, let's take a little bit of a deeper look. Jacob's conflict. His character in life is a rich allegory about you and me. Oops. We're not just reading about Jacob here. We're reading about us. Our faults. Our peccadilloes. Do you like the English word? Uh, the stuff that's wrong with us. We find it in Jacob. Um, his life was filled with deception. He deceived his father. Uh, he finally deceived his father by uh, pretending to be Esau so that the father would bless him and confirm the fact that he was the inheritor. <coughs> and in order to deceive his father, firstly they made a nice uh, land scheme for the father and pretended it was innocent. And then he and his mother cooked up a plan to kill a lamb, skin it, and take the skin and put it on his hand and on his face and on his neck because Esau was a hairy man and Jake, uh, Isaac by this time was blind and feeble but if he touched e uh, Jacob's hands or touched his face and he felt the rough hairiness there he'd be convinced it was Esau so Jacob simply deceived his father and then he was deceived in turn by his father-in-law Laban uh, if you read the story in Genesis 29, 16 to 25, he falls in love with Rachel, uh, the daughter of Laban, wants to marry her. Laban says, you better work for me for seven years with no pay and uh, earn the right to marry my daughter. And Jacob works for seven years and the wedding day comes and the dad fools him because he covers the bride in a veil and they have the wedding party and then they uh, spend the wedding night together and consummate their marriage and the next morning in the light of day Jacob look at, looks at his new wife and wait a minute you're not Rachel you're Leah the older sister and he goes and complains to his father-in-law and the father-in-law says oops I'm sorry about that well if you want Rachel you have to work for me for another seven years and so Jacob does so the deceiver deceives his sons deceive the family of Hamor there's another ugly episode in the life of that family. Uh, the uh, sons also had a sister, Dinah. She's out in the field somewhere one day, and the sons of Hamor come along, and one of them rapes her. And uh, so the brothers, her brothers, Jacob's sons, 
goes to Hamor and say, you know, what they did is a terrible thing, but we don't want to fight with you guys. You know, let's just kiss and make up, and you'll all be one big happy family. And uh, so Hamor and his sons are very happy about that. And the sons of uh, Jacob say, there's just one thing we uh, require, that all of you guys have to get circumcised so that we can accept you as part of our family. And they agree. And while they're healing from the circumcision, the sons of Jacob killed a lot of them. They just deceived them to the point of death. And finally, Jacob is deceived by his sons who sell Joseph into slavery and sprinkle the blood of a lamb on his coat to pretend that he had been killed. Now, if you pay attention, you'll also notice that in all of these stories, as we work our way through the series, the lamb keeps popping up. We saw the importance of the lamb in last week's message. Um, and here we see references to that again. Not only is his life full of deception, it's also full of fighting. He was a fighter. Two brothers fight, Esau and Jacob, even before birth. Moms, can you imagine what that must have been like? Two sisters fight, Leah and Rachel, lots of jealousy between them. Uh, Jacob, all his life, loved Rachel more than Leah and caused a lot of animosity between the sisters. Laban and Jacob fight. Jacob is not happy with his father-in-law, who constantly accuses him of cheating him and not working hard enough. And uh, they are always fighting. And then Jacob fights with God. I mean, he just takes on all comers. Um, but at last, Jacob meets his match and is crippled. Let's look at that extraordinary passage. Genesis 32. There's so much that comes out in this story. Genesis 32 from verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And they wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Now, we don't know if this was a vision, if this was a dream, or it actually happened. And, of course, the man wrestling with him was not just any man. This was the Lord, or the angel of the Lord, God himself. And it's just a picture of you and I, if you've ever been in crisis, and you have wrestled with God in prayer, you know what they're talking about here. Uh, it's just when you when you uh, set everything else aside and you are determined you're going to get a hold of God. This is what Jacob did. And when, verse 25, verse 25, when he, God, saw that he prevailed not against him, Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, this is God said, the angel of the Lord said to Jacob, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he, Jacob, said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob, the cheater, the liar, the supplanter, the guy is always working out his angle, the guy who fights with everybody, who argues with everybody, the guy is always out to get something for himself. It's an incredible moment of self-awareness, of self-recognition right there. God says, who are you? Confess. Tell me who you are. Tell me what you are. And Jacob in that moment is broken. And he said, Jacob, verse 28, and he, God said, 
by name shall be called no more David, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name, for it is the guy has just been beaten up by God and he can't help himself. Okay, I told you my name. I'd like to know your name. Uh, well, and uh, he, God, said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask me after my name? And he blessed him there. He doesn't tell him his name. And Jacob called the face, the name of that place Peniel, for I have seen God's face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, which is a little stream, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his side. Jacob finally met his match and was crippled. It left him broken, yet transformed. He was forced to confess who he was and be crippled before he could be, be renamed the Prince of God. And the Apostle Paul learned exactly the same lesson. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he being given a thorn in the flesh, they caused him a great deal of suffering. Three times he asked God to heal him. And he, God, said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, if you compare Paul and Job, uh, I contend that Paul suffered even more than Job suffered. But their response is so different because they were in a different era, different people, with a, a different treatment from God. And so Paul was very quick to say, Okay, if you're not going to heal me, that's fine by me because I'll just get closer to you. It'll make you stronger spiritually. And this, of course, was what happened to Jacob as well. As a result, when Jacob was broken by God, he was fundamentally changed. The striver, the supplanter, the fighter became a careful man, still with faults, but more considerate and worshipful. We see him leaning uh, on his uh, crippled leg and worshipping. In the New Testament memorial to Old Testament heroes, Jacob is remembered, that's in Hebrews, the chapter of heroes. He's remembered not as a supplanter or a deceiver or a fighter with God and man, but as a worshipper. The ultimate compliment for Jacob Hebrews 11.21 By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. He couldn't stand upright on his own. God had crippled him permanently. And he is remembered for all time for nothing else but for being a worshipper. Only God can work that change in us. There are lots of spiritual lessons from Jacob. Until you get a hold of God and God gets hold of you, nothing else in this life matters. Let me say that again. It's not an extreme statement. Until you get hold of God and God gets hold of you, nothing else in this life matters. It's just details. Getting hold of God and being transformed with God is what our life on this earth is all about. From the day of our salvation, God's purpose for us is to conform us to the image of His Son, to transform.
to make us his princes. And that's a long, difficult process. And until we can keep that fast, God is not done with us. He's more interested in our passion for him than in our performance for him. Good or bad. Jacob was not a very nice person. He was deceitful and greedy and selfish, but he would not let go of God, and God blessed him. You know, Jesus condemned the Laodiceans, not for being sinful, but for being lukewarm. Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 to 20. Now, that's not an encouragement for us to go sinning. It's just a reminder that we have to be passionate in our relationship with God. It is, it is something that should consume us. It should never be something we just take, oh well, uh, glad I'm saved, on my way to heaven, but I've got things to do in this life and I need to get busy on stuff. Uh, God wants us to emulate Jacob, not Esau. So here's the challenge. That we would resolve not to be part-time Christians, convenient Christians, once-a-week Christians, but turn to the Lord and ask Him to deal with your cold heart if it is cold, and stir up your spirit if it needs stirring up, and touch you as He touched Jacob, and turn you from a sinner into a saint. This should be what motivates each one of us each day. Moses led the Israelites from slavery into Egypt, slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And what should have been a journey of weeks took 40 years because the rebellious and sinful people of God could not bow the knee to him. Their old attitudes and ways had to die before they could appreciate and understand their relationship with God. When the new New generation at last stood ready to enter the land flowing with milk and honey. Moses urged them to be single-minded and obedient in their walk with God. Now, the promised land is not a picture of heaven. The promised land is a picture of the victorious Christian life here on earth. And if you read the story of the promised land, it's full of conflict, full of wars, full of fighting. That's what life is like on this earth. We have to fight every day against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But it's a fight worth fighting, and the results are wonderful if we'll just be passionate and intentional in our walk with God. So this is what, partly what, uh, the whole of Deuteronomy is a wonderful, wonderful book. Most of it is uh, Moses' farewell address, but chapter 13, verses 19 to 20 give us a good sum summary. I cause heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, that thou mayest cleave to him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. To him. Uh, choose life. Be intentional. Be passionate in your walk with God. That is why Jesus Christ died to save us. 
He rose from the dead again. He wants us in every way to be children of the second man. To be different in every way from the children of this world, the children of Adam. We have nothing in common with him. Nothing. Once you get saved, once that spirit of God starts growing in you and changing you, nothing else matters. And if that is the way we approach life, we'll be fulfilled and full of joy and actually achieve something for God every day. Next week we're going to